Well, good day to you. I'm Joel, one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you right now. Um, And if you don't know, if you're new here, we've been in a series since January called Restore. We've been walking through 1 Corinthians, uh, and we know that we took a break last week. We had some of our lay people speak about the Lord's Prayer. Uh, We're going to take one more break this week. Next week, we dive back in. 1 Corinthians, next week. This week, though, we are going to dive into something a little bit different. Um, And so I hope that you you're ready for that. But I assure you, again, Restore will pick that up next week. Um, today, though, I want to talk about some things, and um, some of it comes out of a trip that I just came back from. I'm actually not supposed to be back yet, uh, but I went ahead and came back and um, from Nepal, and I was over there, just a quick little jot, right? Run, run up to Mount Everest. Um, I'm telling people I went up to Mount Everest, and they're going, oh, you summited. I'm like, no, I didn't summit. Um, people die from that. Um, I I went and took a picture and came home, okay? So um, did not do that at all. But man, I tell you what, um, I called them up and said, guys, I'm coming back early. I need to preach. And the response of the team was great. They said, oh boy, um, here we go. Um, Because there are some things I do want to share with you today uh, through a lot of prayer. When you're hiking and hiking and hiking for hours on end, um, you have a lot of time for prayer. A lot of time for self-evaluation, a lot of time for what God, and, and part of my prayer was going and saying, God, what is it next with Chapel Point? What, what are you really wanting to do in this place? Um, and wanting some affirmation and confirmation from the Holy Spirit regarding that. So today we get to dive into a story that I love, many of you have heard before, but it's going to be a story um, that is important for us. And it's the story of Nehemiah, but on a broader scope. So if you would go ahead and open up to the book of Nehemiah, um, it's before, if you go to Psalms, that's in the middle of the Bible, and then go back left, okay? It's, it's before that, Ezra, Nehemiah. That Ezra, Nehemiah was con- is considered to be one book previously. It was broken up later on, Ezra and Nehemiah. I want to make sure that you understand some contextually speaking what was taking place with Ezra and Nehemiah. Around 600 years, roughly 600 years before Jesus Christ uh, came in flesh, the Babylonians invaded Judah, which is one half basically of Israel. Um, they came, invaded, destroyed Solomon's temple, all types of things. Now, the Babylonians came and they invaded Jerusalem three times. How many times? Three times they came in and invaded uh, Jerusalem and that surrounding area. Each time they would take captives back to Babylon. Now, they would leave others, uh, remnants that were still there in that proximity. They didn't take everybody back, but they took a lot of the leaders back because that was their way of just demolishing the morale of an enemy. And so they took many of them back in captivity. About 40, about, I'm sorry, about 70 years after the first invasion, um, some things began to change. Now, the first invasion, just to give you some context as well, um, the first invasion involved people like Shadrach, Meshach, and... All right, so um, that included people like that. About 70 years later, though, you have Cyrus. Cyrus is the king of Persia. And the king of Persia started to allow individuals to go back to Jerusalem to help reestablish it. Okay, now there's a lot of uh, varying reasons for that, but he started to allow other people to go back and help. Um, Zerubbabel or Zerubbabel, um, you can say it both uh, ways. Everybody say that with me. Ready, set, go. That's awesome. Um, You always play along, it's great. 
He was one of the first people to go back. What he wanted to do was he wanted to reestablish the temple. Remember, I just told you that they had come, and one of the things that they had done is destroyed Solomon's temple. You remember that, right? Just told you that? Well, he's wanting to help rebuild it. Then you have Ezra. Um, now, that's in the first half of Ezra. You see that story about going to rebuild the temple. The second half of Ezra, remember, it used to be one longer book. Um, the second half of Ezra is where you have Ezra going, and he was a scholar. And he's in many ways reintroducing the Torah. He's reintroducing the covenants that they had made with God. All right? So one, Zerubbabel, or Zerubbabel, he came, and he's saying, we need to rebuild the temple. Ezra then comes and says, we need to make sure that we re-identify ourselves as children of God, get back to the Torah, get back to living according to the way God wants us to live. We've made covenants with God, and part of the reason we keep experiencing the captivities that we're experiencing is because we've stepped away from the covenants that we've made with him. So he's reintroducing the Torah and everything else. And then you have Nehemiah. All right, Nehemiah is only 13 chapters. Really what you see is the rebuilding of the wall and the first half of the book. All right, so you've got the rebuilding of the temple, you've got the reintroduction of the Torah, and then now you have the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. All of this is happening, and all of this is taking place. And as I said previously, the king of Persia, Cyrus, had given the Jews the permission to return to Jerusalem to help rebuild different aspects of it. Now, the problem with all of this is the Jews would still fail to turn away from their sin. The Jews would still fail to turn away from their sin and they kept living according to the, what their desires of the flesh were rather than according to the will of God. It's no different than the restored series that we're talking about with Corinth, right? First Corinthians is that we know that they are polytheistic and not monotheistic and they kept worshiping and making gods or anybody they wanted to make gods to. That was part of the conversations that I had with missionaries and others as I was overseas is talking about Buddhism and talking about Hinduism and like everything could just become a god and they're like, okay, well, we'll make this a god. And there is only one true God. And I had to be really careful about the things I would say. I had to work really hard on the trip not to get arrested um, because I just wanted to yell it so bad. I'm like, don't you know the love and the grace and the freedom that is found in Jesus? Well, these are individuals that were no different. It's the same throughout history. And so they were refusing to turn away from their own desires. In fact, they were adopting the practices of the surrounding nations. Spiritual practices, social practices, also political conditions were absolutely horrendous. And they were adopting all the different practices from other people rather than abiding by the will of the Heavenly Father. So we see this happening and... Um, as all this is beginning to unfold, as I told you, rebuilding of the temple, reintroduction of the Torah, and now rebuilding the wall, Nehemiah hears from God. I want to give you a quick summary of the story of Nehemiah, and then we're going to come back to chapter 1. There is Nehemiah. Nehemiah was somebody who worked for the kingdom. He was a wine taster or a food taster. Now, you would think if anybody want to be a food taster for like a living, that'd be cool. However, not this situation. Because the reason he would be a food taster is because if somebody was trying to poison the king, he got to taste it first. If they lived, if he lived, if Nehemiah was good, the king would eat it. And I don't know if I want to play the cards like that. But here he is. He's working with the king. He actually has some trust with the king. And he goes, he's thinking... 
as he begins to hear about the demise of the wall in Jerusalem and the people and their unwillingness to turn back to God, he is literally just struck with conviction and with a call to go and help. So here is Nehemiah. He hears about everything that was taking place. He's like, I want to go help. So he begins to call out to God, and he's repenting, and he's asking through prayer for God to use him somehow. Um, In chapter 2, Nehemiah had prayed for the opportunity to speak to the king. When you work for the king, that's a precarious situation to be in. But he goes. God presents an opportunity. He's like, king, I need to go back and help rebuild the wall. You're letting other Jews go back and help. Will you let me? Ironically, the cool thing is God spoke to this, uh, to this king, I guess, because the king was like, hey, listen, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you papers to give you permission and safety to go back to Jerusalem, and I'm going to give you the resources and everything you need to help rebuild the wall. Isn't that cool? It makes absolutely no sense, but God intervened and wanted that to happen. I mean, that's like our government today saying, Joel, all the pastors who are just loving the word of God, we want to give you guys every resource possible to help Jesus be made known throughout the nations. Wouldn't that be cool? Let's start praying for that. Well, the king said, why don't you go ahead and go back, and here's the permission slip to be able to get through all the treacherous points of life, and I'm going to give you the resources as well to help. So Nehemiah goes back tells us in uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17 through 18, it says he starts finally, he goes back to, Jer- to Jerusalem. He spends a few days and nights evaluating the condition of the wall. And then he tells him in um, Nehemiah chapter 2, 17 through 18, he's like, hey, come, now it's time to start rebuilding the wall. I've done an assessment of the situation. Let's go. Chapter 3 tells us that all the people are helping to rebuild the wall. They're working on it collectively together. Chapter 4 keeps going. And then, of course, they started to receive some opposition. Whenever you join the work of the Heavenly Father, there will always be opposition. Can we just get used to it? Can we stop being surprised when the world is against us? When Jesus even said, if the world loves you, then you don't love me. Like, can we just recognize there's going to be opposition? Um, Many times, I will tell you, if you have no opposition in your life, you're probably not living according to the will of the Heavenly Father. Now, you've got to be really careful with that, but you need to recognize that whenever you're living according to the will of the Father, there will be opposition. Sanballat and others started to oppose everything that he was doing. Why? Because their power and their influence was being threatened. Chapter 5, Nehemiah, they end up facing economic crisis. A lot of the people were helping to rebuild the wall, but that meant they weren't earning the income that they really needed to earn. And so they weren't supplying for the families and then they weren't even helping one another. And so Nehemiah is upset about that. And then in chapter six, we find others coming to try to distract Nehemiah from the work that they were called to do. It tells us that um, in Nehemiah chapter six, they were trying to be distracted to come off the wall. And Nehemiah had to say, wait a second, we can't come down. We're doing a great work. And we already know that he's building the wall with one hand and he's carrying a sword in the other hand to help get rid of the opposition to make sure that they couldn't attack them. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've received a call of God, a conviction of God, it's going to receive opposition. But also a lot of times when we receive that opposition, that's when we go, hey, I'm going to go do this, but maybe not because it gets hard. You ever committed to something and all of a sudden it gets hard? We don't always like the hard. 
But Nehemiah had a conviction on his life, a calling from God on his life that was so deep and so rich and so full that he knew that he had to give his life to it. And so he's given his life to it and there's opposition and they're trying to distract him. Satan often distracts. Remember, I don't think that Satan always is trying to destroy you. Sometimes all he has to do is distract you from the call, from the will of God in your life, on your life. It tells us in chapter 6 and chapter 7 that finally they completed the building of the wall. Chapter eight through, uh, chapters 8 through 12, it tells us that Ezra and Nehemiah, in essence, kind of joined forces to try to help the people. But you know what the people never did? They never truly turned back to God. They kept living according to their own will. So here comes um, Zerubbabel, and all, he's trying to rebuild the temple. Then you've got the introduction of the Torah again to say, let's be faithful. You've got the rebuilding of the wall as well, and yet the people are going, we don't, we don't really care. We still want to live for self. You ever try to help somebody and they don't want to really be helped? Well, we certainly see that here. So Ezra and Nehemiah are joining together to help one another. By the end of the book in chapter 13, what we see is, yes, the temple was neglected, even though they were trying to rebuild it. The Torah was ignored, and the wall was now being used to sell their own personal goods and even work on the Sabbath. And the people are like, what are you doing? The physical aspects of their life had changed, but the spiritual condition had not. The physical aspects of their life had changed, but their spiritual condition had not. When's the last time you can identify that your spiritual condition had changed? And I think when you look at the story of Nehemiah and Ezra and even of these other individuals who are a part of the story, I think you have to examine, they were willing to do something even though they received radical persecution, radical opposition, and they were trying to be distracted and destroyed along the way, but they would not give up because the call and the conviction of God on their life was so deep. It begs the question, what are you looking for God to do in your life? Every single person has a call of God on their life. Now, every time God speaks, we know it demands a response. You can remain silent, but that's your choice. That is still your response to the call of God and the conviction of God in your life. Conviction is a blessing. It's the Holy Spirit speaking into your life. God is speaking into every single child, son, daughter of God. And you have to make a decision about what that call is and what are you willing to do about it. One of my challenges for you today would be to leave and go out of this place this afternoon to go to a family member, to go to a friend and say, hey, can I tell you what the deepest conviction in my life is right now? Because we already know that the deeper your conviction, the greater your spiritual tenacity. The deeper your conviction, the greater your spiritual tenacity and grit. The deeper you have a conviction and a call from God on your life, the more you will do anything to make sure that that happens that you will live that out according to the will and the desire of the heavenly father. And we all have one of those. It's not for you to watch somebody else live out their call and their conviction. It's for you to live out your call and your conviction. But too few people today can answer that question. What is the call and the conviction in your life that is allowing you, that would give you the tenacity, the spiritual grit to make you live in a way that Nehemiah was willing to live? to receive the persecution, to receive the opposition. What is that for you? Because we know that being obedient to the will and the call of the heavenly father will always require sacrifice. But what does that look like for you? So again, 
Babylonian captivity, God allowed three different times, they go into exile, God allows for the people to fall because they didn't want to be obedient anyway. They were going to live according to their own desires. So he's like, fine, I'll give you up to your own way. I'm going to let, let them, fine, whatever you want. So they go into exile. Finally, some of them get to go to return. They're doing everything they can to help reestablish the people of God. And yet the people of God go, we don't really care. But yet they're adamant to live according to the call and the conviction that God had placed on their life. Is that how people would describe your life? That you have such a call, such a conviction in your life, that you would be willing to do anything to live according to the Heavenly Father's call on your life. You should be able to tell other people, my greatest call is this. Don't worry, I'll get to mine in a little bit. So that's a summary of what was taking place. Y'all understand it a little bit better now, yes? Okay. So we go now, I told you I'd give you a summary, Nehemiah chapter one. Will you please stand for the reading of the word of God? I told you after each of the captivities, you can leave the screen up, but I told you after each one of the exiles, there is a remnant that was left over, right? Some went to exile, some did not go into exile. And so knowing that, it tells us in verses one through three, it says that there is a remnant that is left there. And that they said the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, it says that they're in great trouble, they're in shame, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, the book of Nehemiah then goes into talking about even how they rebuilt the gates and everything else, okay? And then it jumps into here, verse 4. If you would please read the part that is underlined, that would be great. Um, and if you can do better than the last service, praise be to God. As soon as I heard these words... So as soon as he heard, I just told you, as soon as he heard about the remnant that was left over and that the gates were destroyed and the wall was destroyed and all these other things, as soon as he heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I said, oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. So this is just God saying, listen, I already told you, if you're not going to be faithful to me, I'm going to let you scatter. If you don't want to, kids, if you don't want to obey your parents when they're trying to help you out, stop getting upset when you get in trouble. Can I get a hallelujah? Hallelujah. If you're unfaithful, I'm going to scatter you among the peoples. You're going to be a, if you're going to do a bunch of stupid, you're going to get in trouble for it. Right. right? But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, 
and give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So you know a little bit of background now. All that's unfolding, all that's happening, and here's then what unfolds. Nehemiah, you already know about the wall, everything else, but he hears about the oppression. He hears about the struggles. He hears about all of these things, and it says that he began to weep. Now, I know we don't like to weep today. So, you know, they say crying is a sign of what? That's a lie. It's a lie. Everybody say, get over it. Everybody look at the man around you and say, get over it. I just created a lot of counseling needs. That's what I just created. Right? So we, we look at that and go, man, wait, we already know. Listen, do you want to reflect? Do you want to be like Jesus? Yes or no? Okay, so he goes into the Jerusalem for the very last time. He sees the city and what's he do? He weeps over the city. Why? Because he saw their brokenness. What was the last thing that you were so broken about, that you were so broken for, that the call and the conviction in your life said, you know what? I weep over that. So the very first question I have, what are you weeping for? What are you weeping for? What are you crying about? What is it? Or are you living such a life of numbness? that you don't even know. You just wake up every day and you just do your thing, but you don't really know what you weep over because you don't have such a deep conviction, a deep call in your life. Two things that make me weep. One, lost. The lost people, I just, I just want them so badly to understand about who Jesus is and about his grace and his goodness. Second thing that makes me weep is the bride of Christ, the church. Now, some of you already know how I feel about this, but never have we in half a century just thrown away the resources and the opportunities that the church in America has had to influence the world so quickly. Never before have we experienced such apathy and complacency in a place that we claim to have freedom. And as a result of that, the freedom's leaving. Trust me, it is. You want an example of it? Say, sure, give me an example. Okay, I'll give you one. Thanks for asking. You know, I just came back over from Nepal and we're talking to some people who don't know Jesus and the, one of the ladies that we're speaking with is um, when she was very young in life, she had an accident. I don't, I don't want to share too much. I've got to be very careful with it. Um, but she had a, something on her body that was deformed. And so and there, in that culture, that means you, you were often rejected. So her whole life she has been experiencing rejection and now all of a sudden um, we're telling her about Jesus and she just told us, I want to accept Jesus, but I know that for me in this life, it'll only mean more rejection because there in the entire region we were in, there are fewer than 50 believers and her whole family would reject her and there you live together as a family, generation after generation after generation. You can have three, four generations in the same home. Praise be to God, we chose a different way, Amen. Um, that would be bad for everybody. I'd be in prison. Be, anyway, um, so I, I, look at, I look at it and go, wait a second here. She was having to make a decision. I've lived a whole, an entire life of rejection, and now I'm going to be rejected by my entire family. But yet I want to accept, I want to receive Jesus. 
If you knew that you didn't have lunch today after church with your family ever again because they would reject you, would you still come worship the one true king? We've made it so convenient. And I don't believe that being a believer is about being convenient. I believe it's about giving your heart to the one true God who gave his son to die on your behalf so that you could experience freedom in him and no longer be held captive by your sin. And so what I met is some amazing men and women who had been rejected by their families but they love Jesus. They have such a deep call and conviction on their life to introduce that entire region to the power of Jesus Christ. And they weep about it. They cry for it. But very few people are crying today. That's why I weep on behalf of what the church has become, the complacency and the apathy and the indifference that we have to the pain of the world, the numbness that we have to the call of God. Very few people that I encounter today can even articulate what their great call is on their life by the heavenly father to live out for all of eternity. It's because we're lazy. So you have to ask yourself, what are you crying for? This is the model of Nehemiah. He began to weep and it said he mourned for what? Days. Not for a moment. Oh, too bad for them. And then he moved on with his life. No, he mourned for days. He knew it was something he was going to have to do about what God was speaking into his life. That's the way that we all should be living. And so the question is, what are you, what are you weeping for? What are you crying for? I mean, so that, that very deep ingrained thing in me with the bride of Christ is why we started to be the church. I can tell you where I was walking through New York City, 2019, and I'm literally walking. I used to live outside of New York, so I'm there and I'm crying, literally crying, lots of tears over what we've done with the bride of Christ. And God just said very clearly, either do something about it or stop complaining. So we started to be the church. We're right now influencing over a hundred churches regularly. The goal is over a thousand. And we want to see over a million people from this ministry, over a million people come to know the saving power of Jesus Christ through those churches. Amen. You're going, well, that's kind of, that's kind of like a, kind of aggressive pastor. Our God is plenty big enough. Amen. So we start to understand this. That is a deep burden and conviction on my life. I will live it until the day I die trying to empower other churches and other ministries to wake up to the power of the gospel because we have thrown so much of it away. And I'm not saying every ministry, but we know the track. We know what's happening. We know the history. Only five to 6% of churches are actually growing at the pace of society around them. That's it. And yet we had the greatest message ever because we have grown so numb and complacent to the power of the gospel. This is why they were scared about me coming back. <laughs> but it's the word of God. What are you weeping for? Answer that question today. What are you weeping for? In your life, what are you weeping for? Because of the conviction, which is a blessing, is so real and so prevalent. 
Second question, please write these down. What are you weeping for? Come on, you can write them down. Put them in your phone, whatever you got to do. Write them on your neighbor's forehead. I don't care. Don't sit here and leave this place the same. We have a call of God on the life of this church to impact other ministries and churches throughout the nation and throughout the world. And we will do it until we die, until we are with him. And we need soldiers to join with us in the fight. What are you weeping for? Second, what are you repenting of? I think I love this. I love this. He he begins to repent and to confess. It calls it out for us. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, oh, Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive, your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel. So now he's calling out. It's such a deep call, such a deep conviction that now he's weeping over it, but he's also confessing of the complacency and the apathy for the people. And some of you are going, well, that's not his job. He should just be looking at himself. No, we live in a very individualistic society, but guess what? That's a corporate community. What you do as a believer impacts me. And what I do as the pastor of this church and as your, as your brother in Christ impacts you because we're the family of God. And I promise you the blood of Jesus is thicker than any other blood. But we don't like that. We want to be individualistic. That way nobody can judge you. No, we need to confess on behalf of one another and this corp and this entire group of believers. Because we're in this together. That's what, this is what you have to know. Camera, come with me. Who, who's, who's the guy I'm picking? Who's the guy I'm, oh man, this is going to be fun. Jimmy, stand up with me, brother. Oh man. Literally, Jimmy goes, please don't play. Oh. This, everybody say, hey, Jimmy. This is my friend, Jimmy. Um, no, don't, you don't interact. You just, okay. Um, so he's a good friend. I can do that with So I, I look at this and I go, this is what we need to understand. A lot of times we want to live individualistically. We're just going to be our own thing. Guess what? No, we're the family of God. The family of God means we're living life together. Guess what? This is my brother in Christ. When this man mourns and grieves, I mourn and grieve. When he celebrates, I celebrate. That's what it is to be the family of God. And we've made everything so individualistic. And some of you are going, well, I want to be a part of church. Well, then come be a part of community and relationship with each other. Don't live individualistically. Live as the family of God and you will experience the power of God in a way that you've never known before to introduce this entire culture with the power of the gospel. Don't you get it? That's what we have to understand. Stop living alone and live as brothers and sisters in Christ because when this man hurts, I hurt. When he sins, I repent on his behalf because that is my brother in Christ and I want this man to be closer with the heavenly father. Love you. (laughs) So we look at all this and I go, wait a second. One day I'm gonna just hit my face so hard, but none of you are gonna laugh. You're gonna all be like, oh God, please be with him. 
I, I look at it, I go, man, that's what it is. And so now he's confessing on behalf of the people. When this church, and I'm looking at every one of you, when we recognize what it is to actually live life together with the call and the conviction of God as the family of God, then we'll know the power of God. You are not made to come and hear a nice little message or anything else and then walk out of this place and live alone. You are not made for that. You are made to be a part of the family of God. And we have a call on this church. We have a conviction in this church to preach the full gospel every single bit. There's 66 books. We don't remove any of it. Amen. And we have a call to live out and to speak into other ministries and other churches. Will we make other people uncomfortable? Yes, and I'm completely okay with it. Kind of gets me excited. What are you weeping for? Second, what are you repenting of? And then third, how are you praying that God will use you? What are you praying about? So what are you weeping for? What are you repenting of? And what are you praying about? I'm not talking about an occasional request either. I'm talking about what are you begging God to do? Here's Nehemiah. And he comes onto the scene <laughs> and as he's coming onto the scene, he says, God, please use me. He's, what I love about this is he doesn't go, God, please use somebody else to reach my neighbor. He says, God, please use me. God, please don't, don't let this keep going, this injustice and this, this, this lack of mercy and the, the, the walls are crumbling and everything that you want for us is just being destroyed. Use me. And too many of us are waiting for God to use someone to do the very thing he's asked us to do. That's called living by the conviction of God in your life and saying, God, I don't care what it costs me if my family abandons me or anything else, I will be obedient to the call and the conviction of God in my life. It's time to wake up. I'm telling you, friends, as a church, we're just getting off the starting line. And some of you are like, I'm out. I can't do all that. That's okay. I mean, I'm going to hurt for you, but that's okay. But we're going. You want me to go through the last 50 years and how we've just thrown away all the things that we claim to be awesome? And he says, God, use me. Use me. He says, oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man, meaning to the king. Let me be a part of it. Don't, don't use somebody. Use me to share my faith with my neighbor. Use me to change the way the business works. Guys, the schools may say, stop talking about Jesus. They cannot shut your pie hole about Jesus if your heart is right with God. 
They can't. So I go, what are we doing? Nehemiah, man, what a powerful example because he he knew, listen, you can't lead people where you're not willing to go. Who are the most influential people in your kid's life? Who are they? Very simple answer. It begins with P and ends in errands. What is it? We're like, why aren't they reading the Bible more? Will they see you reading the Bible? Why aren't they praying more? Do they see you praying? Why aren't they sharing their faith with their friends? Are they see you sharing your faith with your friends? What is the call of God on your life? God, I love you. I praise you. Give us the courage to live according to the call that you have placed on all of our individual lives, but also as your church, the bride of Christ. God, wake us up. May we have the the spiritual grit. We know the greater our conviction, the deeper our conviction, the greater our spiritual grit, the greater our spiritual tenacity. And so God, may the, the conviction be deep. May the conviction be deep. And our tenacity and our spiritual grit be great to chase the will of the heavenly father and the desires that you have for us, no matter the cost. Wake us up, O Lord. Wake us up, God. Do not let us grow numb to the greatness of Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.